0: This message comes from NPR sponsor, REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and snacksing. Visit your local REI Co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways to opt outside.
1: Our names are important to us. They can tell us who we are and often who we came from. So imagine suddenly discovering the last name you've always carried might not actually be the name you should have. Alex Neeson began looking into her family's history after discovering her great-grandfather's name was different from their family name. Her search to discover the story of her great-grandfather's name took her to cemeteries, courthouses, and archives in South Louisiana. Mm -hmm.
2: The whole idea of tracing your history through your name, it just doesn't take that long before you get to the generation where whatever name it is that your people were going by was imposed on them.
1: While much of the U.S. is recognizing that history and its impact on the nation with the celebration of Juneteenth yesterday, some Americans are looking for history closer to home. The legacy of slavery and racism left many gaps for African-Americans looking to trace their family history, and genealogy is helping fill in the blanks. After the break, Alex joins us to talk about her search for answers about her family's history. We also speak to the genealogist who helped Alex with that research. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. We've got a lot to get into, so stay with us.
3: Big news stories don't always break on your schedule. But with the NPR app, news, culture, and podcasts are ready when you want them. In your pocket. Download the NPR app today.
0: This message comes from NPR sponsor REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and snacksing, backpacking, and another outdoor thing that rhymes with backpacking. Visit your local REI co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways you can opt outside.
3: The NPR app cuts through the noise, bringing you local, national, and global coverage. No paywalls, no profits, no nonsense. Download it in your app store today.
1: Alex Neeson joins us now to talk about her search for answers. She's an editor and producer for Radio Lab. Alex, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me. And genealogist Nika Sewell Smith helped Alex with her research into her family history. She joins us as well. Nika, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me today. Anya L. Gordon, a genealogist and the vice president of the Afro American Historical and Genealogical Society, joins us. Yael, it's great to have you. Thank you so much. Alex, you started this research after learning that your grandfather did not share a last name with his father. Your great-grandfather's last name, Howard, was different than your family surname, Neeson. How did you make that discovery?
2: When my grandfather passed away in 2021, um, sort of you know peak COVID, I wasn't able to go to the funeral, but my parents did. And when they came back from the funeral, they brought me a program. Um, and uh, you know New Orleans obituaries uh, are prolific in the amount of information that they contain. And and one day I sat down and was just going through the program. And just in the first paragraph, it had all of the information that you would expect to see a name, a birth date, where they were from. And then it had my grandfather's parents' names. And it listed Edna Jackson, his mother's name, and then his father's name, Wilson Howard. And that was the first time that I had ever seen the name Wilson Howard, and it was also the first time that I had realized his dad's name or the person who we thought was his dad was totally different from ours. And so I started asking questions.
1: Now, Nika, I would assume this is not the first time you've heard a story like this. We have a story like this in my own family. How did you start the process of researching where Alex's great-grandfather's last name came from?
5: Well, really, it, it goes back to the foundational elements of genealogy, regardless of whatever you're trying to research, you always want to start with sound genealogy, meaning you start with what you know, what living people know, and you trace backwards throughout the generations. And a lot of times when people are beginning the process with a question like the one that Alex had, where they're trying to rectify the difference in last names, um, that that becomes like the you know like the the north star for them as opposed to just doing the research. So um, you know once I talked to Alex and she you know actually gave me the program to look at. We started you know going through. She interviewed her family members. Um, you can't forget the home repository you know or what we call the home library that has additional information. And then you use documents such as the census, marriage, death, um, and birth certificates, information like that to fill in the gaps of the information that you don't know. And so as we started going through the process, we found um, Grandpa Clarence on the census with his mother. And in fact, that was like a three-generation household where it was him, his mother, and his grandmother all living there together. We just continued to trace them back generation by generation. And then that's when it got super interesting.
1: Well, Yael, as a how often do you hear stories like Alexis? For me, um, it is extremely common, um, more common than not,
3: um, where you have individuals who think they have all the information that they need by the time someone passes away, but then you're met with a shocker when you see something like an obituary or even a death certificate that has other information and then it makes you question not only who that person is, but it but also questioning who you are now. So that, that that it is very commonplace for this to happen um, and for individuals to be questioning, but it is it, it is very important that they continue to work on trying to break those walls in order to be able to get the information that they need.
1: So Alex, this was news to you, but it was in the obituary. so somebody knew this information already. How did your family respond when you pointed out the discrepancy?
2: The first person I called was my dad, um, and and then I called started calling his siblings. And the name Wilson Howard was familiar to them. Um, and no one had an answer for why his name was Howard, and ours was Neeson. And no one had an answer from for where Neeson had come from. And I learned that all of the confusion that I felt in that moment when I first read Wilson Howard's name on that page, um, is a sense of disorientation that they had experienced for years and had, in some cases, asked some questions, had tried talking with my grandfather about it and really had turned up no answers. It was sort of uh, like a black box mystery that had existed in the family that I just was not aware of until that moment.
1: Nika, you talked about turning to, I will say, the keepers of the history in your family, the people who know the stories. But sometimes that can also be a barrier because sometimes a narrative is created around certain familial dynamics that isn't accurate. It's just the story we tell. How do you overcome that barrier and really get to the truth?
5: Well, I think it's a combination of things. It's it's once you start to gather evidence from multiple sources, whether they're considered to be official or whether they are the narrative that has been pushed by the family, you really sort of do a reconciling and, and look at what's before you. And you know, for most families, I would imagine um it may not necessarily be something like a surname. It may be family lore about being Native American. Mm-hmm. It may be family lore about how an ancestor arrived in the United States or um, a number of different things and And really, you just have to um you know kind of look at the sum of all the parts and determine you know at the end of the day, once I've put all these things together, what is the most likely story for this? you know what what? what makes sense and and with this particular story you know once we discovered um you know new great grandpa and him having a similar name and being in the same location and all the other pieces it was like oh it's more likely this guy than than what the obituary was saying
1: well, the study of families, lineages, and ancestry has become more accessible with the advent of technology. Today, services like Ancestry.com and 23andMe have made tracing genealogy into a pastime for many people.
2: started my ancestry research with my father about three years ago. I discovered an entire community at the Freedman Town in Dallas, Texas called Little Egypt that my family had started, as well as the burial site, McCree Cemetery. Um, We've now found over 92 ancestors that are buried there. Uh, The cemetery um, has a preservation board, which I'm now on. African-American cemeteries are one of the best ways to find out more about African-American ancestors.
1: Jyal, services like the Freedmen's Bureau from the National Archives provide free access to records. How do those databases operate? Well, those databases operate
3: uh, to where persons can go in and assist, well, volunteer to index those records. And so many of those records are now digitized. Um, in some some areas, they are fully, they, they are, they're indexed, but it's a lot more work that actually has to be done with indexing for the Freedmen's records because it's a lot of records to go through page by page. And in order for someone to be able to find what they need, they need to be persons who say, okay, I can document this so someone else can find because there are errors. It's, of course, human errors, but you can locate many of these records on Family Search. You can go through many of the um, national records. I can actually have this information just as well for persons to view for free, and that includes the bank records for Freedmen's Bureau and even work-labor contracts and even complaints that went on between persons um, that were
1: affiliated with the Freedmen's Bureau. Nika, what are some of the big obstacles you run into when you're doing genealogy research?
5: Number one, this is across the board, uh, regardless of the type of, you know, how people identify in the records or how you personally identify, it's access. I think everyone believes that everything has been digitized and scanned and it's online and all you have to do is type in a name to search and everything comes out. And that's not that's not truly how it is. And there is no um, blanket, you know, sort of policy by state or even country in terms of what is made available to the public for genealogy research. For instance, me and Yael, we, we research Louisiana and Louisiana is very, very local centric in terms of, you know, older records, you don't necessarily go to the state archives in Louisiana to go and do research by parish, parish by parish, as you would in Mississippi, where there's a focus on corralling all the records for the state in one place. And again, this this varies from state to state, it varies from country to country. And then, you know, once you get access to the records, are they in a format that makes them easily searchable, like Yael talked about with um, the Freedmen's Bureau and how, you know, there are states where certain parts of the collection have been heavily indexed and in and other areas where they have not. Um, you know, then it's, again, it's through the processing. Which parts of the records are indexed? Is it just the first name mentioned? Are the locations mentioned? Um, is it every name indexed? All of those barriers come into play. And then another one that a lot of folks don't actually really think about very much is handwriting and the fact that people have to read cursive. And a lot of folks struggle with having to read handwriting. And so that's why the indexing, you know, making it so that the written word on the page is put into a typed format that people can put into a search engine and search. That's why that's so important is because a lot of folks cannot read you know, their own handwriting, and they can't read, uh, they may not be able to read historical handwriting as
1: well. Now, Alex, in in researching this history with your family, your great-grandfather's last name, you discovered ties to slavery in in that search. Let's listen.
2: We learned here that Levi had probably had a wet nurse. That's what raised by hand means. Rather than being breastfed by his own mother, who probably had to work. We learned that he had been owned by Abraham, and we learned that this is why he wasn't in the auction papers six years later with his mom and his sister. A Negro boy raised by hand. Because when he was a sick little boy, seven years. he was sold away from her. Finding Levi here was like finding the last link in the Nissan chain.
1: Interesting to
3: have
2: that ring right next to this sale here. Yeah. Yeah, This is where my name comes from, from Abraham Neeson, from this family.
1: So, Alex, your search for your great-grandfather's last name eventually leads you here and to your family's history of enslavement. We hear in that clip reference to a ring you're wearing. Explain what that ring is.
2: Yeah, so I have a nameplate ring that I wear on my left hand. Um and I, you know, it's pretty common that people get their first names on nameplate jewelry, but mine has my last name. Um and I made that choice because when I was a kid, uh my dad really uh he really sort of instilled a sense of pride in our last name in our family name in my in me and my sister. Um, and I also grew up in a military family where your last name is very prominent character in everyone's life, from the soldier on down through the family. Um, and so I I was a kid who grew up hearing my dad referred to not by his first name, but by his last name. And so then I became an adult who had certain social circles where I was also known as my last name. And it's just... Um, Something that I've always felt really proud of and something that my dad always taught me I had to take care of, that I had to um, treat with respect and with a tenderness. And so when I was ready to get a nameplate ring, I got my last name instead of my first name. Um, And I wear it every day. I never take this ring off. So it was really... um, it was really disorienting, honestly, to go on this journey and to be physically in these archives and handling these pages that were documenting not just the sale of my family members, but a whole lot of other people as well with this surname and this new information about where it had come from.
1: And and we should be clear here that surname comes from the family that enslaved your family. Yes, they their name uh, was Nesom,
2: N-E-S-O-M. Modernly, we spell it N E A S O N, and we could see those fluctuations in the documents as we were working on on this uh, story. Nika and I, um, we actually saw this name spelled a lot of different ways, from Nisum, the original spelling, to Lisum with an L, with one E, with two E's, with an a U M and O M. There were all kinds of misspellings, and initially. Um, I thought that that was unusual. It sort of scared me. I wondered, are we on the wrong trail? Is this are these the right people? And I learned from Nika that this was actually quite common. Um, Levi was not literate, and we saw that uh, reflected in documents um, where other people were signing for him and he was using this characteristic X, um, and then it would say his mark. Um, and so in many of the official records that we were looking at, Uh, he was dictating to a clerk. um, And so he was saying his name out loud and someone else was writing it down. And so that's how, and so the fluctuations in how his name was spelled made a lot more sense in that context. And I learned through Nika that
1: that that's really common. In fact,
2: that names would shift over time. Coming
1: up, we talked to a 1A listener about the discoveries she made about her family using Ancestry.com. We'll be back with more in just a moment.
0: This message comes from NPR sponsor, Progressive, and it's Name Your Price Tool. Say how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show coverage options within your budget. Visit Progressive.com, Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. This message comes from NPR sponsor, REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and snacksing visit your local rei co-op or rei.com for the million and one ways to opt outside this message comes from wired on wired politics lab you will be guided through the exciting challenging and sometimes entertaining vortex of internet extremism conspiracies and disinformation listen to wired politics lab wherever you get your podcasts
1: Now let's get back to our discussion about genealogy and black ancestry. For Americans with black ancestry, genealogy can fill in the blanks left by the legacy of slavery and racism in the U.S. Services like the National Archives, Freedmen's Bureau, and slave voyages provide free access to records and documents to help with that research. But now science and technology is also stepping in to help fill some of those blanks. Three years ago, Sierra Smith made an account on Ancestry.com. She just wanted to trace her family's roots, but she discovered her family's ties to slavery. Sierra Smith lives in Long Beach, California, and she joins us to talk about her research. Sierra, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Sierra, what inspired you to make an Ancestry account? Well, growing up, I was
4: raised a lot by my grandparents, especially my grandmother. So they always just took me on trips, told me about my family, a lot of family pictures around that house. So it just kind of made me really interested in our history, where we come from, all the connections and everything. So once my uncle on my father's side really got into ancestry, um, the Ancestry website, he asked me if I wanted to make... A account and if I wanted to take the DNA
1: test. And so I was like, oh, of course I want to do it. So I signed up. You uncovered a connection to slavery in your family that you didn't know about. How did that discovery differ from your previous understanding of your family's history? So like
4: a lot of black people, my paternal side, my grandmother on my paternal side told us that we had Choctaw Native American ancestry. Mm -hmm. Um, She's from Mississippi. So that's kind of why the explanation was that we were kind of more fair skinned or lighter skinned. Um, But doing the ancestry, we didn't find any Choctaw ancestry at all, not even a little bit. And so from there, we kind of could tell, oh, this is coming from the legacy of slavery. This is coming from children who were made with enslaved people from their owners. So that's kind of how we found out a lot of that
1: history. How did that change the way you thought about your family and your family's background?
4: I feel like it answered definitely a lot of questions. Um, it made me very sad i it I think that people usually use the Native American um ancestry kind of to distance themselves from the fact that a lot of us are descended from those type of relationships, so it definitely um definitely made me feel really sad, but it also like made a lot of sense,
1: Alex, when you researched your family's history, knowing that your family at some point had been enslaved, that wasn't surprising to you but it was still a very um, heavy part of the podcast, listening to you read the names of your family members and the names of others who were enslaved along with them. How have you been processing what you learned?
2: Yeah, um, I think it was it, heavy is, is the right word. Um, before I started working on this, I, um, my understanding of my own family's ties to enslavement um were sort of abstract i knew that they existed but there were i had no i had no like specific context i had no details Um, and so when i started working on this and those details came into focus um and not just details but names and ages and the dollar amounts that people in my lineage were sold for the places who did the selling, who was around when they were sold that level of detail. I think, um, I don't know. It was sort of like, like you've been looking at something with a filter over your eyes and then the filter is removed suddenly. And you can see very clearly. Um, I think, I think it, I think for me, I wanted the filter removed. So while it was heavy, um, and the the processing, I'm not sure if, you know, I, I don't know that there's any one way to process the information. Certainly in the moment, I wasn't processing it. When we were in Louisiana and, you know, reading those names from that book, uh, my brain was sort of, I don't know, it, my my brains went into some kind of survival mode, I guess, mm-hmm. uh, just to sort of survive the moment. Um, and I can remember Nika and others asking me, um, what I was feeling. And most of the time in the moment, I, I I kind of just wasn't feeling anything. I was sort of like, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. Um, and in the months after that, um, I think it's been just a lot of sort of sitting with the information um, and sort of trying to meditate on you know, my reality and the reality of lots and lots and lots of white people in this country. This is a shared history. This is not the sense of disorientation, that heaviness. I'm not the only one. I'm not the first one. I'm not the last one who has felt that. And so I think part of the way that I've tried to process this is to keep, stay close to that, that this is not a singular experience, that this is not something um, to be ashamed of, that this is, um, you know, this is what my people and a lot of other people survive.
1: Yael, what challenges are there when it comes to looking for records and documents about family members who, who may have been enslaved? Well, the challenges
3: come in um,
1: when there
3: is a lack of information. So what I do is I'm a historian first, then a genealogist. And so part of my work is specializing in antebellum history, working on and for plantations in the deep south, Louisiana, Mississippi, and, all, and even parts of Virginia, Maryland, D.C., and trying to make connections for persons who have enslaved ancestors. And so oftentimes, there, while there is a lot of information, sometimes information is just not there. And we have to look in the in the places that we normally would not look in in property records because enslaved people were considered property or looking in someone's family papers that will have been donated to various higher education institutions, places like that. And so sometimes you may only have first names. And you have to figure out which of these five maries is that person's ancestors. So it can be very, very difficult, but it also can be very dramatic, but it also can be very eye-opening and brings a family full circle and make it more whole.
1: Alex, I just want to know how your family's doing, because you, you solved a few mysteries as you were doing this story, including the mystery of your great-grandfather's last name, but also the mystery around... Where Nissan came from in the first place, you you end up going on quite a journey with the story. How has your family received what you've discovered? Um, it's been
2: great. I mean, it was it was it was such a a, a strange um, journey because i I was sort of walking on this path um with Nika, with um other folks at Radio Lab as we worked on this. Um, and trying to keep a tether out to them as I was uh, learning things and uncovering things. And once the episode came out, the first person that I spoke to about it was my dad. Um, and he was really happy with it. I think that in a lot of ways, um, there were some of the questions that I was asking, um, not just about my grandfather's parentage, but those larger questions about Where does Neeson come from? Why are we Neesons? Are we supposed to be Neesons? I think these are curiosities that other people in my family had, but that uh, they weren't necessarily um, in a position to answer. Uh, I think that they had to, you know, my dad in particular had to look, had to face forward and keep moving forward so that we could get to a point where I could take the time and the space to turn around and and say, okay, there's a bunch of there's a lot of gray back here. So let's dig through it and figure it out. And so, uh, you know, I've spoken to my dad and to my aunts, and I think that they were all really interested because we feel so proud to be Neesons because there's this shared sense of pride. And so uncovering where that name come from, I think, only intensifies that.
1: That's Alex Neeson. She's an editor and producer at Radiolab. You can hear the Radiolab episode in the podcast feed. It's called Family People. Alex, thanks for speaking with us. Thank you so much for having me. We got this email from Jennifer who says, As a historian, I use Ancestry regularly, but the recent purchase of the company by the hedge fund Blackstone makes me very concerned about data privacy, especially with regard to DNA data submitted by Ancestry customers. I wonder what your guests think about the ethical balance between the information that Ancestry provides researchers and the risks to user data. Sierra, I'll come to you first. Was that something you considered before you signed up? Definitely.
4: I kind of went back and forth for a long time because I had heard about um, different leaks or just things about, oh, sending your DNA and then somebody finds like or uncovers a criminal in your family or anything like that. So I definitely thought about it. But honestly, the the reward outweighed the risk to me as like this work or this hobby. I don't even know what to call it. It was really important to me. So I was like, you know, I'm just going to go ahead and submit it. I really want to get connected to um, people and they connect you through who else has done your d- uh, d- done their DNA. So I just went ahead and, and did it. I figured they had enough information
3: on me anyway. <laughs> yeah. what about for you as a historian? Um, for me, it, it is hands down without question i am an advocate and proponent for taking dna tests i do genetic dna work and genetic genealogy work, so it is extremely important for me, especially with the elders, but also trying to make sure that they are at they're calm and at ease with doing so. As the young lady mentioned, they're they have enough of our information anyway. And I think the most um, the, the, the most striking thing that I have ever come across is not someone stealing someone's information, but finding persons whose parent may not be their parent, and this person is seventy five years old, and you have to explain that to them. So there are various reasons why you don't why people are not, or leery about taking DNA tests and there are privacy issues, but of all these companies are definitely
1: trying to work through all of these. We got this email from J.R. who says, I've tried multiple ancestry searches to little avail. Coming from a Jewish family, we know many people were lost in the Holocaust, but the family that did venture across the pond from Europe, both before and during, were ridiculously tight-lipped about it. Now the only people who know who may or may not have survived are dead. I tend to say that we'd give Henry Louis Gates Jr. a run for his money. We also got this message from Linnell in Brooklyn.
2: I've been working on my family tree for the past 15 years. My family originates in Barbados, West Indies, and I've managed to research my family back to the late 1700s into the early to mid-1800s. This also means that I've found some enslaved ancestors. Um, it's a bit exciting to be able to locate these family members, but also bittersweet because, you know, these are families that have been enslaved and were the property of others. I do intend to continue researching and finding as much information as I can for as long as I can.
1: Thanks for that message, Linnell. Sierra, you also have family from Jamaica and Panama. What did you find when you looked into that side of your family's history? Um, via Ancestry, honestly, not
4: much. Um, most of what I found since they lived in on the Canal Zone, the Panama Canal Zone, they were in the U.S. Census. So I found a lot of information about my grandmother's parents and, you know, her siblings and maybe a generation before but not much other than that but what was really cool was to just confirm everything with my grandmother and like see her face light up mm-hmm. reading all the names and and all the nicknames and things like that so um, that's pretty much what I found with uh, my history, my ancestry with Um, in the Caribbean. So I am trying to figure out how to find more
1: of my ancestry when it comes to Jamaica before they got to Panama. Gael, we know ancestry is a monthly membership fee, but we talked about the Freedmen's Bureau and slave wages, which are free. What other recommendations do you have for people who want to look into their ancestry but don't want to subscribe to services?
3: I say certainly go to your local libraries they uh, many of them have ancestry accounts there to whereas you would not be able to necessarily build a tree but you can research the information um, just as well um, you can go to familysearch.org there is a plethora of records that you can access online for free or go to one of their centers but most certainly check out the um, the of Court, the repositories, the state archives, and all of those places have information that you can view for free.
1: We've been speaking with Yael Gordon, a genealogist and the vice president of the Afro-American Historical and Genealogical Society, and Sierra Smith. She's a 1A listener living in Long Beach, California. Sierra, Yael, thanks for joining us. Also with us was Alex Neeson, an editor and producer at Radiolab, and Nika Sewell-Smith, a genealogist who helped Alex track her family history on the Radiolab podcast. The episode is titled Family People. Today's producer was RV Getty. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk more soon. This is 1A. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Macmillan Audio. One of the most thought-provoking books about the Middle East, Thomas L. Friedman's From Beirut to Jerusalem, is now available as an unabridged audiobook featuring a new preface read by the author. Find it wherever audiobooks are sold. This message comes from NPR sponsor Greenlight. Want to teach your kids financial literacy? With Greenlight, kids and teens use a debit card of their own, while parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and savings in the app.